So my wife and I haven't been married for too long, but we've been married long enough that I've learned that there's a very real and fundamental difference between a healthy disagreement and an unhealthy disagreement. On the surface, the, the difference is just, it's pretty plain. Uh, at the other end of a healthy disagreement, both people win, ideally, that's what you want, right? You go into it and you don't understand why the other person doesn't agree with you because obviously you're right, right? You don't get it, but you want, you're willing to hear them out and you have a conversation and, and usually, inevitably, it comes to some sort of compromise, right? I wanna show up 15 minutes early, she wants to show up on time, so how about five minutes early? That's it's healthy, right? Uh, an unhealthy disagreement uh, is essentially one that you go into, you really don't care about what the other person thinks because you are absolutely right and it doesn't matter. Um, and on the other end of it, nobody wins, right? Because you're both just kind of frustrated, you can't see each other's point of view and everybody loses. But one of the other things that makes a healthy disagreement healthy is that usually there's some ground rules, there's some, there's some principles that go with it, uh, whether they're spoken or unspoken, but it, it's something like this. Say you'd sit down with your spouse or sit down with your, with your parent and they're about to engage in, in a conversation you know you have to have, you're gonna hash it out, and they say to you, look, uh, e even if we get to the other end of this and we totally disagree, let's just remember uh, that I love you and that we're on the same team, right? That's, that's kind of a fundamental rule for, for healthy disagreement. So you can go into it, you can say whatever you want, even as, you know, as silly as it's gonna be, which is quite often most of what I'd say. Um, and you can know that on the other end of it, it it's okay. We still love each other, we're, we're gonna get through this, we're still a team. Well, uh, in some way, this is actually what we have in the first chapter of the, of the book of Malachi. We have a pretty healthy disagreement, and it's healthy predominantly because God's involved, right? And everything that he's involved in is, is good. Um, but God's gonna engage in this debate. He's gonna engage in a conversation with him, himself and the priests of, of Israel. And he's gonna make some, some pretty strong accusations and he's gonna conclude with some pretty strong points. And it's gonna be a pretty, pretty big gut punch for the people. Um, but he starts the book, as you remember, with what Pastor Jeff preached to us last week. He starts with the very first words of God at the beginning. I have loved you, he says. And even though they're, they're thinking, well, how have you loved us? Come on, look at everything going on in our lives. He, he says, yeah, but I love you because I chose you. And you, you look over at Edom, look at Esau. Yeah, they're gonna rebuild, but I'm gonna destroy them. But you, I'm disciplining you to call you back to myself because you're mine and I love you with all my heart. And so when we, when we get into the gut punch of our passage today, and I, and I kind of hope it is, honestly, uh, when we get into this gut punch, we gotta remember that, that this comes in the context of God saying, I love you. Listen, I'm, I'm saying this for your benefit. I'm disciplining you because I'm calling you back to myself because you're my people, I've chosen you, and I will be yours forevermore. But that doesn't mean the disagreement doesn't get hard, and it really does. And I actually just wanna highlight for you probably the strongest statement that God makes in this passage. This is verse 10. This is, this is what he says. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. That's a pretty strong statement, right? God's saying, close the doors of the place of worship. Yeah, where you gather to worship me, stop coming because I'm not pleased with what you're doing there. Just, just imagine if God were to come to us and say, shut the doors of the church, not, not because of a pandemic, but because of everything that's going on inside those doors. I find no pleasure in it. I don't enjoy your worship because it's, what does he say? useless, 
I wish that you would stop lighting useless fires on my altar. Really, what, what he's saying is it's pointless. It's a waste of time. So how did the people of Israel get here, right? You, you remember the, the context of this book. The, this is kind of post-exile. So the, the people have been sent away because they, they were conquered and they were out in, in other lands, Babylon and all these different places. And now they've, they've, some of them have come back to Israel. Uh, you remember the books of, of Nehemiah and Ezra and that the walls have been rebuilt and the temple is, is rebuilt. And now they've started to worship again. But it seems like over time now, since the temple is back, since the walls are back and the city is now a city again, uh, it seems like over time there's been this shift in the heart of the people. And, I mean, you can imagine their hard times, right? It, they're being taxed beyond their capacity. Uh, things really aren't looking good. They remember back to the days when God promised that they were going to be a great nation. And they're thinking, none of this is, is this really happening? Is it really ever going to happen? And they're just frustrated with it all. And in the frustration, in the disappointment, in the difficult times, there's been a shift taking place in their heart. And such a shift so far that God would say, close the doors of the temple. I want you to stop worshiping me because none of it is pleasing to me. So what, what, what I want us to spend our time thinking about is what is it that's happened in the, in the minds of Israel? What is it that they're doing that God finds such displeasure in, right? What, what is it that they're doing that makes their worship pointless? It's useless. And I hope for that, for, for some of us, as we look at this, we're, it's going to probe into our hearts, into our minds, and, and ask ourselves, have I been guilty of any of this? Has this, has this happened? It's been, a, it's been a challenging year. Has there been a shift that's taken place in my heart about the things of God and about worshiping him? Okay, so I'm just going to make three points from our, from our passage, uh, and I'll make them as we go. Uh, so let's, let's start with the first one. Uh, the fir- first is this. When does God consider our worship pointless? First, it's when we separate what we do from what we are. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that in a minute. But let's start at, at verse 6, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. God says this, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. So God starts with, with what uh, is a really evident and plain argument, right? He just, he just asks the question, uh, a son honors his father, right? And all the people of Israel would nod along. They're like, yeah, totally. Right? This is the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and mother, and it shall go well with you in the land. Yeah, totally. A son honors his father. Okay, um, does a, a master honor his, uh, sorry, a slave honor his master? And they all nod, yeah, totally. This, this is in the law as well. The slaves were to treat their, their masters with honor and respect. So they're all nodding along. Totally, this is evident. Right, we're, we agree. And then God says, okay, well, if I'm your father, where is my honor? And if I'm your master, where is the respect due me? So God, God says to them, I'm your father, you're my son, but, but you're not acting like my son. If you really thought of me as your father, you would treat me better. Now, what's interesting is uh, the, the idea of God being our father is all over the New Testament. It, it's, it's everywhere. And so much so that we, we sometimes think that it's really just a New Testament thing, right? That God in the Old Testament seems a little more wrathful and a little more directing, uh, a little more controlling than he is in the New Testament. He seems a little more fatherly and kind, but, but it's just not true. It, throughout the, old, the whole Old Testament, uh, we see all these glimpses of God's fatherly love for his people. 
So let me, let me just point out a, a couple passages where God makes clear to us that he sees Israel as his son, not just his people, not just those who serve him, but as his, as his son. One of those is, is Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. You remember Moses uh, is being sent by the Lord to go stand before Pharaoh, and he's going to say to him, Pharaoh, let my people go. But this is what God, God says to him. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may worship me. That's pretty, it's a pretty wonderful statement. Israel is my son. So let him go that he would serve me, right? The, the, the idea of God as the father of Israel is, is very real in the Old Testament. Another passage, Isaiah chapter 1, verse, verse 2. The prophet says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Uh, God is saying that I, I raised children, I reared them, I loved them, I, I cared for them, I brought them, I put them in a land that was good and healthy and had all these resources for them. And yet they've rebelled against me. And who, who is this child? It's, it's Israel. Israel was his son. And so God's point here is he's saying, you, you've known me as your father, I am your father. And yet you, being my son, don't honor me. You, you're not living like what you are. You're not living like sons. And he says, if I'm a master, where is the respect due me? I mean, the idea of God as their master was very, very easy for them to understand, right? The beginning of the Ten Commandments, right? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You're my people. You're going to serve me. You're not going to serve any other gods. You're mine. And so the idea of God being their master, their Lord, was, was very plain to them. And yet he says, I'm your master, and yet you don't respect me. You're treating me like I'm something other than what I am to you. And really, this verse is actually fundamental to understanding the rest of the passage, to be honest, because from here on, he's going to point out what they're doing that makes that so evident, right? How is it that they're failing to act like sons? How is it that they're failing to act like God's servants? But, but this, this verse frames everything to understand that God's point is this. You, you, I'm your father, but you're not treating me like your father. You're, you're my sons, but you're not acting like my sons, you have all of this blessing. You have my promises. You have my heart. And you're not treating me with honor. So what is his evidence for that, right? This is a pretty strong claim, right? I, I, you're, you're not treating me like your father. You're not treating me like, like a master. So what, what is it that, that God says is the actual symptom of that? What shows it? What's the evidence he has? Well, let's, let's carry on. Verse, verse 6. Uh, this, oh, sorry, uh, the middle of verse 6. He speaks now to the priests. He says, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. So I just want to point out uh, three words in that little verse there. Three, three words that just to help us understand it. So it is you priests. You remember the priests in the Old Covenant were the ones who essentially stood between God and the people. So if, if I was an, uh, an Israelite and I wanted to worship the Lord, I wanted to offer a a sacrifice of thanksgiving or, or make a sacrifice for atonement of sin, I would bring my animal, I'd bring my sacrifice, and I'd give it to a priest. And that priest would then take it to the altar, and he'd sacrifice them, do all the, do all the ritual, and, and then that, that sacrifice was coming before the Lord. So 
I couldn't, as an Israelite, approach God and to worship him unless I did it through a priest. So the priests were the ones who, who, who were the closest to the Lord in some sense, and, and people had to go through them. But they were also responsible for teaching the law. They were responsible for guiding the people and making sure that they were actually following the commandments of God. These, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how it all happens. And they were supposed to help them understand it and live by it. So as he's talking to the priests, we have to ask, is, can I hear this for myself, right? Um, we can be tempted to say, okay, well, the priests of today, if the priests in the Old Covenant are probably closest to pastors in the New Covenant, right? We, it, it's our job to teach the Word of God, to make sure uh, that people follow according it. We're going to exhort and rebuke and encourage according to the Word of God. But in another sense, we have to understand that this passage is for all of us because one of the great truths of the New Testament is what we call the priesthood of all believers. Um, in the book of 1 Peter, uh, Peter, Peter makes this very plain. He says that you, you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. So, so you, all of us, the church of Jesus Christ, we're all priests. And what he means by that is we all have direct access to God. We, we don't have to go through anybody anymore. We, we go through Jesus Christ, but Jesus himself is God. So we approach God plainly and freely. So, so it, it is good for us to look at this passage and think, okay, I, I need to hear this for myself. As much as it's also good for us pastors to look at this passage and feel a special weightiness to it. Okay, so, so we have the priests. The second word I want to point out uh, is the word contempt. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Uh, and that word contempt could be translated a, a number of different ways. You could translate it despise. You could translate it hate. You could translate it as to see something as worthless. So it, essentially what he's saying, you priests have hated my name. You've considered me worthless. You have disrespected me. It's a strong language. Uh, and then the last, the last word uh, to point out, two words actually, are, are the words, my name. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Uh, it's important to understand, just for the line of the argument, that in the Old Testament, whenever God refers to my name, he's not just referring to the, literally a name, right? My name is Joshua. He, he's not just referring to his own name, Yahweh, Adonai, uh, Lord, God. He's, he's not just referring to the name, the title given to him, but actually his whole person, uh, whenever that, those two words come up, he's talking about his reputation, his character, his whole being. So when it says that uh, you priests have shown contempt for my name, it really, he's saying, you priests have shown contempt for me. You priests have hated me. That's, that's, that's his accusation. Again, there's a, there's a gut punch for the people here. You've hated me. So how do they respond to that? Um, probably how you and I would respond to that. If God came to us and said, you've hated me. We'd respond with, whoa, 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 how, how have I hated you? Well, it's essentially what they say. So uh, end of verse six. Uh, so it is you priests who have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? How have we hated you? Here's on in verse seven, by offering defiled food on my altar. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Let's carry on. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Now, that, that's important because if, uh, if what we read when we see my name, you have shown contempt for my name, means God himself, then this is how the logic has gone this far. He says, uh, you have hated me. They say, whoa, 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 how have, you, how have we hated you? He says, by defiling my altar. 
And in the moment, we should see that there's a little bit of confusion in the priest's mind. Uh, okay, but how have we defiled you? It's like they're missing the connection between the altar, the defiling of the altar, and how that would mean that they defile God. Right? They're, they're, missing, they're missing the connection here. And then God, God follows up with, uh, with verse 8. Uh, how have we defiled, sorry, this is middle of verse 7. How have we defiled you? And God responds, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, that you can hate it, that you can disrespect it. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? He says, you're bringing sacrifices to the altar, and you're bringing blind, lame, and sick animals. And the law was clear. There's no, there's no dancing around it. The law was clear. When you were going to bring a sacrifice on the altar, it was supposed to be pure, blameless, spotless, the best. There was actually laws that said specifically, you, you are not to sacrifice blind or lame or sick animals on my altar. So what, what God is saying is you, you are literally breaking my law. Yeah, you're making sacrifices, sure, but you're totally disregarding my commandments. You're you're offering blind and lame sacrifices. Uh, God comes to the priests. He says, you've hated me. And they say, whoa, how have we hated you? He says, by defiling my altar. And they say, well, okay, I mean, we've, yeah, we've cut a couple corners. But just because we haven't quite done all of that doesn't mean we think any less of you, God. And this is the point of this passage. He's, in, a sense, in essence, God is responding to say, yes, but the way you treat my altar says everything about the way you think of me. This is the point he's making. And remember, uh, this, this all in the context of God saying, am I not your father? Where is my honor? Right? So in essence, he's saying, you, you, if you considered me your father, if you considered me your master, you, you wouldn't treat my altar with hatred. You wouldn't treat it with disrespect. You wouldn't treat it with contempt. You wouldn't defile it. If you actually knew me as your father, if you actually enjoyed your position as my son, you wouldn't treat me like this. You wouldn't disobey me so blatantly. Uh, and, and we can understand this logic. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to understand, right? I, if you were ever to come over to our, our home where Shalane and I live, um, which we would love to have you sometime, by the way, uh, if you were to come over to home, you would notice that at the door, there's right in front of it, the outside door, there, there's a rug. I think it says welcome. I don't know. I'm not very good at details. Uh, there's a rug. And then when you open the door, the, the first thing you step on when you walk through the door is another rug. I mean, this one looks a little different. So one day uh, I was coming home from work and I, and I walk in through the door and I wipe my feet on the rug thinking, you know, everything has a function and this is the function of a rug. I'm going to wipe my feet on and Shine says, whoa, 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 uh, that rug's for decoration. This, this rug on the outside, that's for wiping your feet. Imagine if I then every day I come home from work, go inside, I walk in the door, and I intentionally wipe my feet on that decorative rug. Would Shalane be justified in saying to me, do you, do you, do you even love me? How, how terrible would it be for me to say, whoa, 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 yeah, totally, I love you, you're my wife. That has nothing to do with what I think of you. She would say, but... I asked you not to do it, so why are you doing it? We can understand that logic, right? The way you treat people's requests, the way you treat their stuff, says a lot about the way you think of them. 
And this is the point God's making. You, you, if you knew me as your father, you wouldn't treat me like this. So the priests, fa- failing to honor the Lord's altar, that, that was a problem. But, but really, it was, a, it was a symptom of the real problem. And the real problem was that they had carried on doing priestly things, but they'd actually failed to remember that they had a living relationship with the God of the universe. He was their father. He was their master, and he had been so kind to them. And even the bad in their life right now was his discipline to call them back to him. The the symptom was, yeah, they treated his altar poorly. The problem was they didn't think of him as their father. And they didn't act like his sons. And I mean, we, can, we can be tempted to do the same thing, can't we, honestly? I mean, we, we carry on doing Christian things uh, and forget our identity as God's children. That one of the great promises of salvation is that you get to be adopted into the family of God. He gets to call you his son or daughter. You're his forevermore. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Do we not forget that? Are we not tempted to? We actually get to enjoy a, a living relationship with God. But let, let me take this logic for a moment and, and let me apply it to, to you and me. Let, let me pull it into our context. Imagine, imagine if God was to come to you and he says, you have hated me. You would say, whoa, 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 how have I hated you? And he says, by rejecting my word. You say, what? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I haven't read your Bible in a long time, and I don't particularly care to study it. I've got so much other stuff on my plate. But that doesn't mean I think any less of you, God. And he says, well, the way you treat my word says everything about what you think of me. Or imagine, imagine again, God comes to you, and he says, you've hated me. You say, whoa, how have we hated you? He says, by, by uh, rejecting my people, by despising my church, you say, whoa, 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 just because I don't want to hang out with a bunch of, I don't know, hypocrites and people who stand next to me and sing and they not even good singers and, you know, they smell weird. Just because I don't want to do that doesn't mean that I, I think any less of you, God. Right, but the way you treat my church says everything about the way you think of me. If he's our father, then we honor him as our father. Then we know him as our father. We enjoy him as our father. But the problem that that the Israelites had, that the priests had, was that they were separating what they did. Yeah, they were still doing sacrifices, but they thought that that didn't make a difference for the way that they knew God. Right, right. Yeah, we're defiling your altar. That doesn't mean we think any less of you. And and this problem, honestly, is is a really big problem for Christians, uh, that we separate what we do from, from who we are in Christ. And it it honestly leads to one of two things. It can lead, first, uh, to legalism. And you've heard this this term before, right? You look at the New Testament, uh, and the Pharisees were guilty of this. They they essentially added law upon law upon law to the law that was already there to make sure that they were doing everything just right. But essentially what they've done is they've separated what they do from from what God has promised them in a living relationship. They're, They're trying to earn something that God could... God would give to them freely. And so we, we, we do Christian things as a way of earning God's favor, but you can't earn what you already have if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus. You can't earn what you've already got, right? Imagine, imagine a son comes home and he sees his dad out in the, out in the driveway and the dad's standing next to this beautiful red car. 
beautiful red car. And he looks and he says, Dad, what a great car. And the dad says, yeah, it's yours. And the son looks at him and says, Dad, Dad, how many hours? Do I need to work 20 hours? Do I need to do 40 hours of work at your shop or, or chores around the home? I'm going to do it, and I want to earn this car. And dad says, no, 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 no. No, it's a gift. It's yours. And the son says, no, I want to earn it. No, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to start working right now. And the dad says, no, 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 it's the insurance, the registration, it's already in your name. This is your car. What, what would be more pleasing to that dad? That, that the son say, no, no matter what you say, I'm going to work for this? Or that the son take the, the, the keys from his dad, get in that car, and rips out through the street, leaving, leaving skid marks behind? Maybe not skid marks. That might not make dad too happy. But probably the latter. God, God offers us a living relationship with him. Freely, it, it, by grace, it's a gift that you can receive by faith. And then we come along and we say, no, I just want to earn it. No, no, I'm going to work. I'm going to work 40 hours. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to go to every Bible study. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to make sure I earn it. No, 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 no. It's yours. It's free. Enjoy it. So if we separate what we do from what we are, we're tempted to fall into a legalistic way of living. But the other way that we're tempted to, to think, the other way we're tempted to live is really what the problem uh, that the priests were having. And it's this, that, that if you separate what you do from who you are, um, you can become apathetic. Right? You, you, you're seeing what you do as essentially a necessary evil. Right? Okay, I need to do this amount of things to make sure I end up getting to heaven at the end of the day. Right? So you, you're trying to think about how can I do just enough to be Christian enough to be saved, right? It's apathy. You don't really care about it, but you just know you want to do it because you want to make sure. You want to, you want to hedge your bets, right? This is, this is like if you remember back to your very first job. Um, you, you usually start your very first job ever, and you start the first month, and you've got this vigor. You're like, I'm a working man now. I'm working. I'm going to earn this money. And then by the end of the month, you start looking around, and you realize, huh, when the boss asks me to sweep, he never really checks the, the corners. So maybe I just won't sweep there. You'll never know. You know, the boss asked me to, to dry all the, all the plates before I put them on the, on the shelf, but you know, honestly, you can't tell the difference, and he never checks anyway, so, yeah, I just won't dry them. Right, you start to think through, how can I do as little as possible to still feel okay about getting paid at the end of the day? How can I do as little as possible as a Christian to feel like I'm, I'm living okay? God, God will accept me. Both of those are big problems, and both of those right miss the mark, and they both miss the great joy of the Christian life. So how do we, how do we keep from falling into this trap of thinking that what we do is, has, has no effect on our relationship with God or has nothing to do with it? Well, it, honestly, it's, it's simply this. Connect everything you do to the fact that you are God's son or daughter. Connect everything you do to that fact. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul, Paul writes this. Uh, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So you remember in the New Testament, there are other places where Peter will say, be holy as God is holy. He's quoting the Old Testament. Jesus himself will say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you think, be like God, be imitators of God. That is, that is a big calling. How could I ever do that? Well, take notice of the second part of the verse. Be imitators of God. As beloved children, 
Don't try to be imitators of God for, for any other reason but that you are a beloved child and that you're going to screw up, but he still loves you. And you're going to screw up again, and he still loves you. But try, try to be imitators of God because you have already been given all of his favor and all of his delight. Um, my, my siblings say to me increasingly as the days go by that I'm just like my dad. And I take it as a great compliment, you know, as much as being like my dad comes with saying things like hokey dina um, or making dad jokes. Uh, but, but I'm very thankful that I'm growing to be like my dad and I hope to be more like him as the years go by because he's a great man. And the reason is I, I, look, uh, I look at the way that he, he raised us all. I look at the way that he loves my mom and I look at the way that he loves the Lord and I think I want to be like him. And, and I remember the times when I would fail and he was gracious to me and he was kind. And, he, you know, I, I, I never once doubted that he loved me. And now I'm... I desire with all my heart to be just like him, to be a man like my dad. That, that really is, is the heartbeat of Christian obedience, that we look at how God has treated us so graciously and compassionately in the face of our sin and our wickedness, and yet picks us up, picks us up, brushes us off, calls us his beloved children, and we should, the heartbeat of the motivation is that we look him in the eyes and we say, Father, I want to be just like you. I want to be just like you. So what, what would it look like for you to pray? Not, not because you know you should, but because part of being a son or daughter is talking to your father. What would it look like to read your Bible? Not because it's, it's what you do every morning, it's routine, it's rhythm, but because the God who wrote this book, who speaks through it even today, has promised himself to you. And you want to get to know him. What would it look like to, to gather with the church Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it is the most natural thing for a family to get together and celebrate the living relationship they have with each other, but more importantly, the living relationship they have with their Heavenly Father. God considers our worship pointless, useless, when we separate what we do from who we are. We are sons and daughters of God. If you don't translate what you do into that context, you don't do everything in the Christian life because you're a son or daughter, then you're going to be tempted to use it as a way to earn his favor or as a way to just barely scrape your way in. Second point, um, when does God consider our, our worship pointless? When it becomes about our selfish gain rather than God's glory. So let, let me carry on. We start at verse 10. I read it already, but it'll, it'll feed us into the next, next bit. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. So God starts in in verse 11. He says, my name will be great among the nations. My, My end here, my goal is that I will be praised and glorified from where the sun sets to where the sun rises. And this has always been God's goal. This is really important for how we read our Bibles, to be honest. We're, we're really tempted 
to read our Bibles as if we're the main character, right? We're the hero of the story. We read something like David and Goliath, and we see him go when he takes the stone from the, the river, and he puts it in his, in his sling, and he fires it whoop, right up into the head of the giant. The giant falls, and we think, okay, okay. So I got to go and I got to take a rock of faith and put it in my sling of joy and my arm of patience will throw it at the giant and he'll fall. This is the giant of, of that, uh, that job that's looming over my head. That's, this is the giant of the family dynamics that have gone so wrong. And we, and we think, this is all about me. It's all about me. It's not. The Bible's actually not, not all about you. It's all about God. It's all about him and his glory and his plans. And, and we get a note of that right in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates Adam and Eve. And he says, let's, let's make man in our own image, in our likeness. And male and female, he created them. Why, why would somebody create something that's an image of something else or a likeness of something? If I were to, to paint you a picture of my wife, Shalane, the, the reason that I would paint that picture is because I want to show you just how beautiful she is. I want to show you how, how uh, kind she looks in her expression. I, I want to show you something true of Shalane by using the image. And that's exactly what's happening in, in the book of Genesis. That's exactly what happens in the creation of man. God creates Adam and Eve to have his image on them so that when people would see humanity, they would look and they would look through the image and they would see God in all of his splendor. Even you and I exist for God's glory. This, this is why everything is. God's ultimate end is his own glory. So he says, this, this is my plan. This is, a whole world's going to worship me. And yet, you, Israel... You to whom I have given promises and covenants and land and all these great things I've shown my miraculous power, you don't even glorify me. The whole world will, and yet you don't. And how do they respond to that? How do they respond to that statement? You, they respond with this, and it should break our hearts, to be honest. They say, what a burden and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Now that, that, that phrase, you, you sniff at it contemptuously. Imagine getting off of, off of a plane, off a flight. You're walking up the, the, the gate there, toward the gate. And you, can, you start to smell. There's somebody, somebody that has not showered in a while. They've been traveling. And you, just, you know that smell, right? Somebody hasn't showered in a long time. And you, oh, you just hate it. Oh, that's a terrible smell. That's, that's really what he's getting at here. Uh, the, the idea of worshiping God as he actually calls us to worship him, the priests were, were disgusted by it. They just, they found it, found it hating, hateful. And they said, what a burden. What, what does that say? They're saying, oh, it's just not worth my time. It's not worth all the energy that it takes. Oh, there's so many things you've asked us to do. There's so many things that we need to, we need to do these washings and we need to take the animals up and we need to do this and this and this. It's just not, it's just exhausting. It's a burden. I mean, you, you've maybe, I hope you've never said those words, but, but have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Right? Uh, yeah, oh man, church is a burden. <laughs> or I could be doing so many other great things on a Sunday morning. It's beautiful. I'd be out playing soccer. I could be out with a family at a picnic. It's just, it just gets in the way. Or, or, or that it's a, it's a burden to read the word in the morning, right? Or, or at night, whenever you read. Oh, it just, it's just tiring. It's just, it's exhausting. I'm sure some of us have felt that way sometime. But he carries on. Um, first of all, they're, they're just kind of exhausted at the idea of worshiping God for his sake. But then it carries on to tell us that uh, they're okay to worship God for their own sake, for selfish reasons. Uh, this is the end of verse 13. When, when you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? 
Rhetorical question, no. Well, verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal. Now, again, the law in in the old covenant was that when you were going to make a sacrifice, it had to be an unblemished, pure, spotless lamb, spotless, perfect sacrifice. And so this, this little picture he's giving is of someone who makes a vow, and you would make a vow in the Old Testament for all kinds of reasons. You'd make a vow in celebration, say it's your wedding day, and you're like, this is the greatest day of my life. I'm going to vow five of the best sheep in my herd, right? Or, or say, um, an, an example of this actually is, is in the book of Judges to show just how, how firmly a vow would be held to, how much you, you would never go back on it. In the book of Judges, there's this story of Jephthah. And Jephthah goes out and he's going to do battle against the Ammonites. And he, and he makes this vow to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my door. He goes and he defeats the Ammonites and he comes home and he sees his home. And the first thing to walk out of that door is his only daughter. And he weeps. And the daughter uh, recognizes what it is to make a vow to the Lord. And in the end, she's killed. But that was, that was how seriously a vow was taken in that day. You make a vow for all sorts of reasons. But the, the picture that God is giving here is that somebody has made a vow, right? That husband on the wedding day said, I'm going to give five of my best sheep. He comes and he ends up, it's the day to make the sacrifice. And he realizes, hold on, these, these five sheep are pretty valuable. Like, I mean, if we're going to go on a honeymoon, we probably need these. So um, how about these, these five? I, know, I mean, that one's missing a leg, but you can't even tell. I mean, once you sacrifice it, it's all just the same, right? Right? And that one's coughing, but don't notice. It's no biggie. Take, take these ones instead. So why, why would someone make a vow that they're not going to carry out? And really, the, the reason would be for, for selfish, selfish reasons. Right? You, you think of that man on his, on his wedding day. He's a five, five sheep. You'd look at him and be like, wow, what a godly man. What a spiritual man. He loves the Lord so much, and he's so excited about his marriage that he's going to give the Lord five of his best sheep. But when the day comes, he doesn't. But people don't know that. They, weren't, they probably weren't there for the sacrifice. And he looks good. He looks, looks great to the eyes of others, but really in his heart, there's no worship in it. And we're, again, we're, we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? Right? I mean, have you ever been in a prayer circle where uh, people are praying and you know that the, the expectation is everybody's going to pray and people are praying and you're just thinking to yourself, you're not even paying attention to what they're saying. You're thinking, how do I start? Do I start with Father Lord or good gracious God or Lord of all the universe? How do I start? You know, and you're trying to think, well, what should I pray for? What sounds the best? What? And you're really, what you're doing is you're thinking, how can I sound good for these people? You're not actually trying to think about what, what do I need to ask of the Lord? Your prayers have become selfish, right? Uh, or, or have you ever been asked, hey, how often do you read your Bible? And I'm just wondering, I'm getting into it. And they say, well, you know, I'm, you know, pretty much every day, you know, I, just like everybody, I miss a few here and there, right? It sounds great. Oh, wow, you're pretty much every day. That's great. But really, in reality, it's been three weeks since the last time you dusted it off. It's, it's worship, the 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 perception of worship, but really there's nothing there because it's all for selfish gain. So ultimately, what are we saying when we do this? We're we're saying, I care more about myself than I care about honoring the Father in heaven. 
I, I care more about me than the great King, God Almighty, the one who will receive all glory from every end of the earth. I'd, I'd rather work things out for my gain. It's worship for, for selfish gain over God's glory. So there's, there's two ways that, uh, that God would consider our worship pointless. He would consider it useless. But I've got, I've got one more point, and it's, it's not from uh, a section of this passage. It's from the whole passage, actually. Um, I just want to point out the fact that, that there were probably all sorts of things in the life of Israel that God could have looked at and pointed at and said, you are really not acting like my children. You, you're, you know, probably they weren't treating the poor very well. They probably treated orphans and widows poorly. They, they were probably cheating on their taxes in some sense because they were taxed really heavily at this time. There are probably all sorts of reasons that God could have called them out. But, but the one thing that he chooses to single out is their sacrifices. That they're sacrificing lame, blind, and diseased animals on the altar. So, so why is it that he points this out as the very heartbeat of his frustration with them? Why is that? Well, well, we have to remember that the whole Levitical law, the whole system of sacrifices, which called for an unblemished lamb, was meant to help the, un- the people of Israel understand that they need to make atonement for their sin, that, that their sin had to get dealt with somehow. And so these animal sacrifices were their way of understanding, okay, so we sacrifice this animal and it makes me right before God. I can approach him now. But what they misunderstood was that those animal sacrifices really couldn't do that. The author of Hebrews makes this point very clear. He says, the blood of lambs and goats can't atone for any sin. Blood of an animal doesn't atone for sin. But they, they missed that. The people of Israel thought that's what it was doing. And the reason that these sacrifices had to be perfect and blameless and spotless and yet were insufficient was because they were pointing to the sacrifice that would be sufficient. You remember uh, when John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Every sacrifice in the Old Covenant was meant to point people to the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make on the cross. That that blood of those goats, the blood of those sheep, of those rams, of all those animals wasn't really doing anything, but they were to remind them that they did need someone to satisfy God's wrath against their sin. Jesus came to do that. So you can understand why God would be so angry at the priests offering blind, lame, and blemished sacrifices. Why? Because those were supposed to be pictures of the pure, spotless Jesus Christ. Essentially what they're doing is blaspheming the very Son of God. They're blaspheming God's plan of redemption. They're saying, we don't need a perfect sacrifice. We need just a blind one, a lame one. They'll be, they'll be fine. That's good enough, right? That's, we don't really need Jesus. We don't need a perfect lamb. But we do. If the, the sacrifice itself has its own sin, its own blemishes, then it's dying for its own sake. But if Christ dies on the cross, pure, spotless, without stain of sin, then his death was not because he was guilty, but it was because he died for those who were. So we do this today too. We, we worship God. We try to worship him apart from Jesus Christ. We, we try to worship him 
thinking, okay, I, I don't really need Jesus. I can, just, I can just earn it. I can live good enough life on my own that I can be acceptable before God. You can't. You need Jesus. When does God consider your, your worship pointless? It's when your worship denies the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. The only way that you and I can approach God is through Jesus himself. You remember in John 14, 6, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we see this all over the New Testament. Let me, let me give you just a couple of examples for a moment. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul is praying. And he says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I thank my God through Jesus. My, my prayers aren't coming to him by any other avenue. There's no other road by which they can meet the Father except through Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4, and 4 to 5. As you come to him, the living stone, as you come to Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's that, there's that term. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God, but the only way they're getting there is through Jesus Christ. One more. Hebrews 13, verses 14 and 15. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. With what kind of sacrifices? Those that are going through Jesus. He even says that the, the offering of lips, praises of lips, your, your singing finds no pleasure in God unless it goes through Jesus Christ. And how is it that you're singing? How is it that any of your worship can go through him? It's by trusting in him. It's by believing in him. In the, in the New Testament, Jesus is described as our great high priest. He's the one who stands between us and the Father. I, I once went to, uh, or have had actually a couple times, had the privilege of going to this, this very ritzy club in Philadelphia just for random meetings. I don't understand how I got there. But at this club, you, you literally can't get through the doors unless you're wearing a jacket, like a, like a suit jacket. And so one time I'm flying down there and, and uh, the airline lost my suitcase. And so I, all my suits were in there. And it was literally a day before I had to be at these meetings in this, in this fancy club, and I, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to get in. <laughs> I can't. But thankfully, thankfully, by the grace of God, the airline covered the cost, and they bought me a brand new suit. You know, there's a little bit of providence and grace in there. Um, but you can't get through those doors unless you're wearing that jacket. Like, they'll, they'll literally stop you at the doors. Well, you can't make your way into the throne room of heaven to praise and worship God unless you have the righteousness of Jesus robed over your shoulders. There's no way you can get in. You're stopped at the door. But if you have the righteousness of Jesus who atoned for your sin, he dealt with the wrath of God and then gives you the blessings as if you had lived the perfect life. Only if that's true of you can you come to the Father and come to him freely and walk through those doors with boldness, courage, and great joy. So there, there is a point at which our worship can become 
useless. It can become pointless. And this was probably years, years in the making for the people of Israel, that they struggled in hard times and they looked around and thought, is God even good anymore? And slowly there was a shift in their hearts. Don't let that shift happen in your heart. I can't help but point out the fact that uh, right now, the, the doors of our church for Sunday morning and Saturday evening services are, are closed. Now, we can meet outside, and that's great. We're going to do everything we can to gather to worship our Lord. But, but I'm not saying this is the reason. I just want to give us thought here. This, is, this maybe is a good excuse. It's a good reason for us to think about whether or not what we used to do in this worship center was really pleasing to our Lord. Or were we just going through the motions? Had we just carried on and started doing things even though we didn't do them as if we were sons or daughters of God? Did we carry on and start doing it for our own selfish reasons rather than actually for the good of Jesus? Or did we do it without ever actually putting our faith in Jesus Christ? Let's let's not miss the opportunity that maybe this gives us to think about these things. God is great and he's greatly to be praised, and he is a loving father. Again, remember, healthy argument, the ground rule, I have loved you, says the Lord. Even if the gut punch hurts, remember that he loves you, and he always will. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, and we are very thankful even for the sharp edges sometimes um, that drive themselves into places in our lives that we don't maybe want to confess that we're falling short in. And so, God, I pray that by your spirit, you would soften our hearts and you would soften our our minds to, to take your word and believe it and trust you, to trust that you love us, and then to carry on desiring to enjoy the living relationship that we have with you, that we are your sons and daughters and you are our father because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So, God, would you be, would you be pleased with our worship Pray that there would, be, there would be not a single one of us who listens to the songs that we sing and whose heart is far from you when it happens, but that we would be able to sing with all the unction we have in our bones. God, we love you and we long to love you more. Teach us, show us the way. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.